There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Podcast Public Service Announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. There's no hidden wisdom of Christian Rosenkreutz, but if enough people believe there is and decide they want a piece of that action, then you'll get more intellectual cooperation, less secrecy and jealousy among scholars, and soon those who join the imaginary Rosicrucians will actually create the delicious soup of enhanced knowledge without ever knowing what they were doing was the result of a gentle con. Clever girl. Or as Churton puts it, if Christ's true loving fraternity had indeed become a thing, invisible, unfound, unseen, unloved, and unwanted in the world, why not establish a real invisible fraternity? Such a marvelous paradox is surely at the root of the amazingly brilliant creation of the secret brotherhood of the Rose Cross. Its mystery and fascination would never end, for it takes root in the unconscious realm from which it came. And those authors did a great job of seeding their narrative with hints of real-seeming sources of wisdom. For example... You remember that CRC goes to Damkar slash Damar to learn? Churton thinks this reference is to a genuine intellectual community of Baghdad called the Sabians, whom he suggests were less of a religious and more of a philosophical community, taking as their holy text the Hermetic Library of Hermes Trismegistus. In other words, this may have represented a mystical society that was seeking free inquiry within a theocracy by covering themselves in what appeared to be a religious mantle, but wasn't. The Sabians, along with other mystical groups like the Yazidis and the Sufis, were intellectual catnip to Europeans who came to expect this kind of learning to gradually make its way from west to east. By having CRC learn from these cats, he was immediately granted legitimate-seeming bona fides. Fascinating. So what happened after the publication? As we noted earlier, there was a huge wave of responses to these tracts, both pro and con. And in addition, because the society claimed to be secret, but scattered throughout Europe, suspicion immediately fell on the major galaxy brains of the time. Surely, for example, René Descartes, the guy who coined I think before I am, see the first reality show for more on him. He must have been a member, right? He immediately fell under suspicion upon his 1623 return to Paris, at least partially because he had traveled around Germany as a volunteer soldier for the preceding few years meaning he had been spending time in the place where the Rosicrucian furore had started, which in turn, depending on who was writing on the topic, either meant that he was part of a new dawning of wisdom or that he was part of an evil, destabilizing, revolutionary force. In other words, that he was a Rosicrucian. So what was a brilliant mathematician and philosopher, who was not in fact a part of this non-existent organization, to do? Quoting Churton, He made himself visible about town. How, he reasoned, could anyone suspect he was a brother of the Rose Cross? Had not everyone heard? 
the infernal brethren were invisible. Furthermore, he reasoned, having sport with the credulous inquiries of friends, it was that very invisibility that must have prevented his finding the fraternity in Germany. Part of the reason that it could be dangerous to be associated with the idea of the Rosicrucians during this period was that they were in many areas seen as revolutionaries, even a sort of proto-communist menace. Note the fact that the three books that kicked things off are even now known not as the Rosicrucian books, but as manifestos. That is, quoting Churton, programs of revolutionary reformatory action on a global scale. Not just the authorities and anti-Rosicrucians thought this. Churton relates that one Philip Ziegler, arrested in 1626 in London, declared himself king of the Rosicrucians and carried papers indicating that he saw the manifestos as a call for secret revolutionary action. Still, the Invisible Brotherhood remained invisible, in spite of the fact that everyone and his brother was trying to figure out how to contact them and join. The question was, join how? The very end of the Fama assures potential adherents that, even though they would remain anonymous, the members of the group would hear all petitions for membership. And although at this time we make no mention either of our names or meetings, yet nevertheless everyone's opinion shall assuredly come to our hands, in what language soever it be, nor anybody shall fail who gives but his name to speak with some of us, either by word of mouth, or else if there is some letter in writing. And this we say for a truth, that whosoever shall earnestly and from his heart bear affection unto us, it shall be beneficial to him in goods, body, and soul. But he that is false-hearted, or only greedy of riches, such a person, first of all, shall not be able in any manner of wise to hurt us, but will bring himself to utter ruin and destruction. And so throughout Europe, ambitious young scholars, desperate for the lives of brotherhood and scholarly contemplation promised by the Rosicrucians, printed and posted their pleas to be contacted by the mysterious group ASAP so they could sign up for the intellectual revolution. On reflection, the call for new members issued by the Rosicrucian manifestos is kind of a perfect system. The tracts themselves claim that the Brotherhood will contact the worthy, right? So if you send out a request and you don't hear back, maybe you're not worthy. Or maybe they just haven't gotten around to contacting you yet. Or maybe you decide that whether they accept you or not, you're going to form your own Rosicrucian society, and then you'll be the one doing the accepting or rejecting. And thus, real-life Rosicrucian societies eventually arose because people believed that they already existed. Churton again. Then the stroke of genius. In responding to the story, you would have to find the fraternity for yourself and in yourself. For did not St. Paul say that his real life was hid with Christ in God? Mackintosh relates a number of stories of the best and brightest of Europe who responded to the call of the illusory brotherhood and sought to join the new order. We picked one of these to exemplify the group, as it really seems to us to underline exactly how exciting and alluring the idea of membership in an intellectual society based on ancient wisdom was for young, educated, rudderless men raised in these tumultuous times. Joachim Morsius was born in 1593 in Hamburg, and though he was a theology student, became interested in the more exotic topic of esoteric knowledge and alchemy while he was still young. He was ambitious. Quoting Mackintosh, he yearned for an international reputation as a scholar, and in search of it, made a long series of journeys to foreign countries. Which is great. Go forth and gain wisdom, young Padawan. But the problem is the expense of these travels, coupled with the cost of self-publishing as alchemical and other musings, quickly drained his inheritance, and he actually ended up in debtor's prison, until he was sprung by the help of the King of Denmark. A detail that we can't help but think could be the plot for a whole novel? Or one of those Oscar-bait Shakespeare-adjacent period films? Hamlet II. The Redemption of the Rosicrucian Debtor. Theaters and HBO Max, June 2023. 
But all of these perambulations and erudite scrivenings, though they earned him a good reputation among fellow scholars, didn't result in a permanent, well-funded academic position or in the level of recognition he craved. Again, Macintosh. His mind was too restless and fleeting, and it is characteristic of him that he should have spent so much of his life searching for the true Rosicrucian wisdom. And here we reach the crux of the reason for this little character vignette. For young and hungry minds like Morseus, especially those who found themselves constitutionally incapable of buckling down and dedicating a whole career to the detailed and laborious work of developing true expertise, Rosicrucianism was pure catnip. Born today, Morseus and his cohort might have glommed onto the so-called intellectual dark web, or Bitcoin, or modern monetary theory, or Greta Thunberg standing. Like so many others, he wrote his letter to the Invisible Brotherhood, begging admittance, and like those others, he received no reply. But he was undeterred, defending the Rosicrucian secrecy in print, eventually meeting Johann André himself, who, in spite of the fact that later in life he seemed to abjure the whole idea of the Rosicrucians, did not put the young man off the Rosicrucian path. Morseus spent the rest of his life traveling around Europe, seeking enlightenment from a variety of teachers until his death in 1643. Again, quoting Macintosh. Morseus was seeking along secret paths to attain the higher knowledge of hidden worlds, to unveil the ultimate mysteries, and from the very basis of things to bring forth a new era. He may have failed in the search, but the dream was to continue, being nurtured in other minds. Indeed it did. One of the books we read for this series, the generically titled Secret Societies by John Lawrence Reynolds, didn't turn out to be a great resource, but did have a couple of pithy observations. First, he pointed out that the symbology of the group immediately led to questions about what, if any, associations the Rose and Cross might have had with other esoteric movements. A suspicious few connected the symbols with those used by the early Gnostics, and later others pointed out that both the Rose and Cross appeared in the family coat of arms of Martin Luther. Still others saw the Rosencross as an adaptation of the Red Cross of the banished Templars, suggesting that Rosenkreutz and his followers were resurrecting that movement while introducing elements of the ancient Kabbalah into its teachings. Boy, you weren't lying when you set the Templars a reference everywhere. No doubt. And we also want to quote Reynolds on the eventual impact of the Rosicrucians, which in many senses continued to be the most influential secret society that didn't really exist in any sort of consistent, identifiable way for the next three centuries or so. He asserts that they had two advantages in terms of influence that previous secret societies didn't. The first was technological. Christians, Templars, Gnostics, Druids, and early Kabbalah advocates had spread their word in the ancient oral tradition, supported by limited distribution of hand-copied manuscripts. Rosicrucianism was the first society of its kind to take advantage of Gutenberg's invention and its ability to produce thousands of copies of its tracts cheaply and quickly. Within a few years after the appearance of the chemical wedding, copies were being distributed, translated, and reprinted all across Europe, with an impact far beyond that of similar philosophies distributed prior to Gutenberg. It had been one thing to hear a tale of magic whispered by a passing stranger. It was quite another to read the same tale, unsullied by new interpretations or ornamentations, on the printed page. The second advantage he noted was the group's apparent exclusivity and the amorphous nature of its existence if it can really, at that point, be said to have existed at all. Exclusivity added another boost to the sudden spurt of growth. The ability to read was restricted to the best educated and most privileged class of society, and their embrace of Rosicrucian principles added veracity to a movement rooted in a hoax. The wave of new adherents to the loosely established philosophy grew so fast and wide that the movement began simultaneously absorbing beliefs of other groups and splintering into competing factions, each division claiming to be the true fraternity of the Fama. Hermetists, 
Gnostics, Pythagoreans, Magi, Platonists, Alchemists, and Paracelsians, minor coteries all, huddled beneath the Rosicrucian umbrella, even as mainstream members began to be absorbed within larger, more tightly constructed groups. Dana, were you expecting guests? I was not. Well, can you get that? Why? We're actually closer to the... You know what? Never mind. Dana, who the hell is at the... Oh my god. It looks like we're in for an announcement. Paranoid strain. Technically unnecessary, but totally super interesting digression. Why? Quick hit guy. So nice of you to sub in when it's not even a... Paranoid strain. Quick hit. Episode. Great to be here. How are the wife and kids? They're doing well, thanks. And the little hitties? Growing like weeds. Junior's taller than his dad now. Cherish this time, Jesuit. It goes by so fast. You know it, QH. Anyway, I should get going. And remember, you were going to briefly derail the show to talk about something kind of related to the Rosicrucians. I was indeed. Let me get back to that, but... Really. Good to see you. It's been too long. Paranoid Strain, Cricket Guy, misses all of you too. Let's do this again soon. Can't wait. Dana, let's do this more often. Always a pleasure, Quick. Such a good dude. We really don't see him enough. Anyway, yeah, we're going to digress into a weird bit of conspiracist lore that... And he did not know this until he started researching this topic. ...actually involves the phenomenon of Rosicrucianism as well as one of the most interesting figures of the period, Sir Francis Bacon. So let's take a few minutes to walk through this theory, which is fun and harmless and very probably not true. First things first. Who was Francis Bacon? Francis was born in London and studied at Cambridge University before he became a member of Parliament in 1584. Bacon was a keen scientist and challenged the Aristotelian methodology that debate and argument by learned men was the only way to discover scientific truth. Bacon's political roles continued, and he was appointed Lord Chancellor, the most powerful political position in England at the time, and after this was made Viscount St Albans. His political career finished after he admitted accepting bribes, and he was fined, imprisoned, and banished from the court, as well as from Parliament. He was later pardoned by the King, but retired to his home in Hertfordshire, where he continued his scientific writing until he died of pneumonia. Thanks, random YouTube clip. Yeah, Frankie Porkbelly was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but is one of that rare sort who leverages his high-born status to actually do something great. And, to be fair, to take bribes. Yeah, which wasn't great, but on the other hand... Also was one of the architects of the modern scientific method, so let's cut the man some slack. And about that, help us understand other random YouTube clip why Bacon's philosophy ended up being so important for subsequent centuries. The philosophy of Francis Bacon went against the deductive reasoning that dominated the age and introduced the inductive method of reasoning in which the premises are viewed as supplying some evidence for the truth of the conclusion. Bacon placed supreme emphasis on experimentation and thought the results of said experiments should be carefully recorded so that later generations would have a reliable and repeatable conclusion to base future experimentation on. It's through this innovation that the name Sir Francis Bacon would ring through the corridor of history as genius and become synonymous with the scientific method that we know today. 
The 20th century historian and philosopher Will Durant said, It was Bacon who rang the bell to call the wits together in Europe had come of age. Precisely. He was a truly seminal figure in the development of modern science and almost an avatar of the ideal science man, totally dedicated to spreading the gospel of the inductive method. In fact, it's long been suggested that the pneumonia that killed him in 1626 was contracted as a result of an impromptu experiment where he was studying the effect of snow stuffed into the cavity on the preservation of chicken meat. I'm a sucker for these stories. Scientists so sciencey that it kills them. Like Archimedes, who according to legend was sketching mathematical or geometric diagrams in the Greek city of Syracuse amid the Roman sack of 212 BC, and whose last words to the Roman soldier who ran him through with a sword was Latin for, please don't disturb my circles. Again, probably didn't happen that way, but still, super badass. Paranoid strain. Digression, digression. Okay, okay, we're back on track. So anyway, Bacon was a famous intellectual in the early 17th century when the Rosicrucian manifestos appeared, which means, just as we saw earlier with Descartes, he was suspected of being part of the secret society of invisibles announced by the Fama and the Confessio. As Macintosh notes, there was good reason for people to make this connection, as many ideas about universal brotherhood and other Rosicrucian-friendly concepts popped up in B-Man's work well before the tracts were published. And there are still more marked reflections of Rosicrucian thought in Bacon's posthumously published New Atlantis, where specific allegorical references to the first two tracts appear to have been intentionally added to his vision of a utopian society. Researchers have definitely acknowledged that in his later years, Bacon absorbed and then used the ideas and symbolism of the Rosicrucians in his work. But of course, many others have gone much further, alleging first that Bacon and his society of fellow thinkers and writers were in fact the origin of the Rosicrucian manifestos. Which is a wild and unsupported accusation, suggesting Bacon somehow is the same person as Johann André through an Elvis is Alive-esque plot involving Bacon faking his death in a chicken freezing incident, migrating to Germany, and writing under the André name until his death. Which, if you're using the actual André's lifespan as a guide, would have been at the age of 133. So that's pretty fucking nuts. But that's not the famous Bacon conspiracy. The famous one makes him not only an innovator of the scientific method, but also the greatest writer in any language at any time ever. Some researchers believe that a spiritual encounter with Pallas Athena gave Bacon the inspiration for his life's work. Well, in some of those cipher writings that he had written, he, he writes there how this, um, he heard a heavenly voice. The voice he heard inspired him towards secrecy and to imitate the work of God. Baconian scholars believe that Bacon's revelation led him to develop a series of theatrical works that would teach the English people and transform them into a nation that could one day dominate the world and resurrect the Atlantean dream. Believing that he put away popular applause as his heavenly voice had commanded, he is said to have written behind the identity of William Shakespeare. Shakespeare is a synonym for Apollo and Pallas Athena. They're both known as shakers of the spear in classical tradition. And the spear represents a ray of light, a ray of wisdom, and they shake that spear at the dragon of ignorance. Exactly what Ben Jonson says in his preface to the Shakespeare folio, um, to shake a lance at the dragon of ignorance. Pallas Athena was, uh, she shook her spear at the eyes of ignorance, so she was the spear shaker. 
Now, she's always been known as the Spear Shaker. That was long before the time of Bacon. He took that name, Spear Shaker, and just turned it around to make it Shakespeare. And it used to be written with a hyphen, and then it became one word, Shakespeare, as the name of the playwright for those Shakespearean plays. But what of the real William Shakespeare, the Stratford man whose name has been revered for nearly 500 years? His writings have been attributed to a number of other authors, including the playwright Christopher Marlowe, Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, and even Queen Elizabeth herself. But Sir Francis Bacon seems to lead the pack of would-be bards, with well over 200 books, essays, and pamphlets on the subject, many of which insist he is the real and true Shakespeare. There is a mystery because when you look at the plays, everything that's in them and, and what lies behind them in terms of experience, uh, knowledge, and something like that's expressed through the plays and the philosophy in the plays and something like that, they do not match up with what we know of the life of the actor. In fact, the life of the actor uh, is quite well known. It's, you know, it's quite a lot of research being done on William Shakespeare Stratford. So a lot is known about his life, and none of it matches up what you can deduce from the author from the plays themselves. In fact, the more we find out about the life of the actor, the, more, the worse it gets. Here you have a guy who, who is barely literate enough to make a mark, much less write his name. There's not a single letter either from him or to him by any of his contemporaries. How can this guy have written the greatest literary works in the history of the world? It just didn't happen. Whoever's the author certainly knew about certain things happening abroad in the royal courts, uh, in France, in Italy, and in Spain. Not only taught the workings of the court, but the intrigues as well, and who would know that? Certainly not a play actor like um, the William Shakespeare. There's no way that man could have known the intrigues that went on inside the court. But Francis Bacon did. He was well familiar with it. He was brought up in the court. Let's review. Not only did Bacon write all of Shakespeare's plays, but he did so in a deliberate effort to spread the Rosicrucian teaching that other versions of Bacon conspiracy thinking suggest Bacon invented in the first place. This is a super fun idea. But it turns out the vast preponderance of non-conspiracist Shakespeare scholarship is unimpressed by the evidence, such as it is, for this claim. Randomly selecting an expert's lecture on the topic, we give you the refutation. The most extreme form of reinterpreting Shakespeare is to say that he was someone else, to deny that he wrote the plays at all. No one doubts that there was a William Shakespeare who was born in Stratford-on-Avon and who went on to act in the London theatres and eventually died back in Stratford. What is contested is whether that man wrote the plays that have come down under his name. And the people who contest it propose various different alternatives. Francis Bacon, the Earl of Oxford, Christopher Marlowe, there's a long list. It tells us a great deal about what people look for in a superlative writer. They see a wonderful poet or a remarkable psychologist or a great philosopher, or a man capable of expressing the views of an aristocratic class, or a man deeply concerned about the status of women and the oppressed, or any number of things for which there is some basis in the text of Shakespeare's plays. Then they note that the image they've constructed of the writer doesn't seem to cohere with a guy who was born the son of a country glover. The glover himself was probably illiterate, and the son never got beyond grammar school in Stratford. So it must have been somebody else. There is no mystery here. There is no subject for debate. 
the facts of Shakespeare's life are as well recorded as anyone could expect, of his domestic life in Stratford, of his professional life in London. We'd like to know more, of course, but we don't know a great deal about the life of any person in his time, except for a few great figures of state and church. We do have documents that say, or that make sense only if you assume, that the actor from Stratford and the playwright in London were the same man. If they were not, if those documents are forgeries or lies, then quite a number of people would have to have been engaged in a great conspiracy, for which there is no positive evidence and no attested reason. Anti-Stratfordianism is in fact just crazy if you know anything about how the theatre works as a profession at all. Theatre is a collaborative art, and people in the theatre always know what other people in the theatre are doing. Even now, in the much larger world of the New York theatre, everybody in it knows everybody else. Everybody knows if someone is ghostwriting someone else. Everybody knows if a new director has been brought in to fix a play. Everybody knows who's understudying such and such a play. Um, everybody knows who's sleeping together. In the much smaller world of Shakespeare's theatre, in London of 1600, when probably no more than 200 people were trying to get a living out of putting on plays at any given time, it is unimaginable that three dozen successful plays could be written by someone other than the man to whom they were publicly attributed without someone leaving some statement about the hoax. We expect, or at least some people expect, plays to reflect the personal experience of the writer. Specifically, it is assumed that plays about kings and queens and lords must have been written by an aristocrat. How else would he know how they behave at court? Hence the suggestion that it was really Bacon who grew up at court and became chancellor of the realm or Oxford, an aristocrat whose lineage goes back to the Norman Conquest. But that is to mistake the nature of Shakespeare's art, which does not pretend to present a realistic transcription of behavior in high places. No real king or duke ever spoke in spontaneous blank verse. And to suppose that a middle-class boy could not grow up to write tragedies about princes is sheer social snobbery. Most Elizabethan plays are about princes. Yet none of the anti-Stratfordians have ever suggested that the plays of Shakespeare's contemporaries, the plays of Webster or Kidd or Beaumont and Fletcher, were really written by lords. We don't have much more to say here, except that, as usual, the conspiracy theorists have failed to meet their burden of proof. But it's also worth reflecting that this is yet another example of how the Rosicrucians can be molded to fit essentially any scenario, which has served the idea well in the subsequent centuries, as it was resurrected over and over in different guises by different groups in different parts of the world, each claiming to carry on the true legacy. Which, again, we can't emphasize enough, was deliberately fabricated, didn't actually hold any secrets, didn't respond to new members' application to join, didn't bring about the total social upheaval for good that they promised, and that remained an object of fascination mainly because nobody ever seems to have actually met a Rosicrucian. We would be remiss if we didn't quote Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum at this point, because the characterization of the Rosicrucians by the students of conspiracies in that book seems to capture the essence of the thing. As one particularly intense adept suggests, the Rosicrucians were ultimately responsible for the education of Hermes Trismegistus, Homer, the Jutes of Gaul, Solomon, Solon, Pythagoras, Plotinus, the Essenes, the Therapeutae, Joseph of Arimathea, who took the Grail to Europe, Alcuin, King Dagobert, St. Thomas, Bacon, Shakespeare, Spinoza, Jacob Böhme, Debussy, and Einstein. From 17th century fraud to origin of all human wisdom in just a few lines, and from a less Rosicrucian besotted character. The rest is a complete mess. Everybody's a Rosicrucian. 
1627, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis was published, and readers thought he was talking about the land of the Rosicrucians, even though he never mentioned them. Poor Johann Valentin André died, still swearing up and down that he wasn't a Rosicrucian, or if he said he was, he had only been kidding, but by now it was too late. The Rosicrucians were everywhere, aided by the fact that they didn't exist. Holy shit, is that a great t-shirt slogan. So, in other words, the Rosicrucians were all things to all commenters, and all without any apparent existence, which of course didn't stop people from being influenced by and commenting on the phenomenon. Macintosh suggests, rather speculatively, that the intellectual and social turmoil stirred up by the Rosicrucians would eventually arrive on the shores of Scotland and mutate into masonry. But of course, Freemasonry is our next topic, so let's hold off on that. He's on firmer ground suggesting that the famous British Royal Society, one of the preeminent scholarly and scientific organizations from the 17th century to the present, and which has boasted luminaries from Isaac Newton to Stephen Hawking as fellows, was in some sense an effort to create the sort of intellectual brotherhood dedicated to the betterment of humankind that is preached in the Rosicrucian manifestos. As the centuries passed, though, Rosicrucianism's meaning would continue to evolve with the times and would come to take on various national flavors. As Churden notes, by the time a real, genuine, organized version of this 17th century fever dream, with actual members and everything, appeared in the subsequent century, the focus had turned from an international fraternity dedicated to the study of all wisdom into a series of mostly intra-country groups focused on one subject above all others. Alchemy. Yes, that brief mention that CRC could turn lead into gold in the Fama eventually became the 18th century's primary Rosicrucian ideal. And there's more interesting history here, but we think the most fascinating story within the various tales of 18th century alchemical Rosicrucianism is that of the Comte Saint-Germain. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.